What started as a call to a house fire in a small, quiet town quickly turned into one of the most heartbreaking crimes this community has ever seen. A crime that grabbed the nation's attention, and now the attention of West Virginia state lawmakers. Six deaths, five of them children, all lives lost at the hands of one woman, a murder-suicide that no one saw coming. Or did they? Our moral fabric finds it unconscionable that a mother could harm her own children or, or take their life. What motivates a mother to kill? Could this be prevented? Were there any warning signs? I'm Autumn Collins. And I'm Casey Gentile. Welcome to Crime in the Coalfields. We want to warn you before we begin that this story contains details that involve crimes against children and suicide. A lot of what you're about to hear can be triggering, so we just want you to be aware of what's to come as we continue and the developments and the details of the story unfold. I'll give a quick synopsis before we begin. This case revolves around Oriana Myers and the five victims. This all began on December 8th, 2020. What started as a call to a house fire quickly turned into a murder-suicide investigation where Oriana Myers killed herself, but not before she murdered five victims. The youngest was one years old. This all happened on Flins Creek Road in Williamsburg, Greenbrier County. Casey, I remember this day very well in the newsroom. When the news came in that there was a fire in Greenbrier County and children could possibly be involved, that was all we knew at the time. That alone was very hard to hear. Yeah. But as the days followed and more news started to come out, it really became something that was so big, something that we don't really get a lot in the newsroom. It was a story that really touched all of us deeply and still to this day does. Yeah. I mean, it's a case that affected the entire community on Greenbrier County. A lot of people that I've talked to say it's by far one of the worst crimes against children that they can ever remember. There's also some recent developments. Now the state legislature is going to have some updates come the session. But before we get into the investigation, I do want to go over the family tree because it is a little bit confusing and there are a lot of people involved. So Oriana Myers, who was the woman who committed suicide in this instance, is 25 years old. She was married to Brian Bumgarner. And Oriana's biological kids were Haken, who was one, Arikiel, who was three, and Kian, who was four. And then we also have Raven Frisbee. She's the mother of the two other kids, Sean, who is seven, and Riley, who is six. Brian and Raven are exes. And again, he is was married to Oriana when this happened. He is the biological father to Haken, Arikiel, Sean, and Riley. And Autumn, as we know, investigations oftentimes have to look back at the days before the crime. So why don't we kick off where things began? We begin on Friday, December 4th, 2020. Brian and Oriana lived at home on Flint's Creek Road near Williamsburg in Greenbrier County. Sean and Riley went back and forth between Oriana and Brian's home to their mother Raven's house. Brian hadn't been living in the home with Oriana for about 10 or so days because he did not have a working car due to a car wreck. So he was staying at his father's house who lived close to his work and he would get a ride from his father to work. He would come back on the weekends to spend that time with Oriana and the children. And on Friday, December 4th, he had finished the work week and came back home to be with Oriana and the children. 
Around 4 p.m. that day, Raven picked up Sean and Riley so she could spend the weekend at her home with them in White Sulphur Springs. Nothing of significance happened between 4 p.m. that Friday to Sunday morning that we could find. So we move on now to Sunday the 6th when Brian went to the grocery store to pick up groceries for the family to get them prepared for the next week, a week that would never come. After Brian dropped the groceries off to Oriana on Sunday afternoon, his father picked him back up and took him to his home to prepare for the new work week. It's important to note that this caused major friction between Oriana and Brian. She was very unhappy with the living situation at the moment. It really became an explosive argument between the two that night via text message. Sunday is when the text messages started to roll in about her mental health and her depression. And that's really when we discover, Casey, the major role that this played in the case. Her mental health and her depression is really the core of this entire case. Yeah, all of these messages were um, brought to the public's attention in a press conference. And this wasn't until January of 2021 that we're hearing all of this for the first time. So in these early days of the investigation, a lot of the people in the community had no idea that any of this was even going on. So this is on Sunday, December 6th of 2020. She sends Brian this message and I quote, don't worry about this piece of an expletive anymore. You won't have nothing to come back to but a corpse. You're choosing money over my depression and it shows. I am truly a piece of, you know, expletive. No one cares. Why should I? Money will come and go. New cars will come and go. But me, once I go, there is no replacing me. No, you're too busy and worried about money. Exactly why I keep telling myself, why bother? I beg and cry for help. Then never do I get it. You're too worried about missing work. Money, money, money. My depression is an inconvenience to you and your work life. Can't have kids if they ain't around. Like I said, it doesn't matter anymore. Expletive. Foolish man, it doesn't matter if they're all in school or not. If my mental health that needs tending to, like I said, begging and pleading still won't have you help me, I'll just help myself. I do not care anymore. Can't have me if I'm not around. I hope all of the money is worth it. Casey, those texts are devastating to hear, especially knowing that there were these red flags that kept popping up and it seemed to go unnoticed in a way. Yeah, and I mean, earlier in the day when Brian was home, Sheriff Sloan continuously talked about how Oriana seemed to be in a really good state of mind. She was sending him texts back and forth, and they seemed to be going really, really well. And then as soon as he left, it's like something just switched, and she immediately went back into this depressive state, and she made that very clear. We move on now to Monday, December 7th. As of 11.30 a.m., Brian had still not heard from Oriana, and keep in mind, they had gotten to the argument the night before over the work situation and him not living at home, so he was obviously concerned that he had still not heard from her. At 11.30, Brian contacted a neighbor to see if they would go check on Oriana, and when the neighbor went to the home, they did not get an answer at the door. So that prompted Brian to call the 911 center and request a welfare check at the home. He sent Oriana a text message at around 3 p.m. and told her that law enforcement were on their way to the home to do a welfare check and gave them permission to go inside the home. That's when Oriana sent Brian the first text message of the day. Keep in mind, this is the first 
Tom Nahi has heard from her all day. And she said, quote, all too busy making money. Come check on me yourself. Hope that money will love you more than I ever did. After he received this text message from Oriana, Brian let the deputies know that they did not need to go to the home anymore to do the check. At around 5 p.m., Raven dropped off Sean and Riley back off to Oriana's home. That would be the last time that Raven ever saw her two children. So then that takes us right into Tuesday, December 8th, which is the day of the crime. And Oriana texted Raven and Brian around 6.30 that morning saying that she was going to keep Riley home from school because he was sick. And then it's not until 2.20 that afternoon that anything else happens. Oriana sent Brian another text saying, quote, I left something for you in the vehicle on the driver's side floorboard. I'm sorry I was not strong enough, Brian. Five minutes after she sent that text, she went to the bus stop to pick up two of the children. Then around 3.30 is when Brian got off work. And then just three minutes later, 3.34 in the afternoon, 911 gets a call about the house on Flins Creek Road on fire. So then at 3.47, Raven gets all of this information that the house is on fire. And of course, she immediately goes because she knows her kids are there. And Rick Winfrey, who is the chief of the Williamsburg Fire Department, was the first one there. And noted by the time he got there, the house was entirely engulfed in flames and almost on the ground at that point. So at four o'clock is when Brian and his brother get to the house and law enforcement, multiple fire departments are already on scene. It's a very chaotic scene because as we are learning, there were kids who were there sometimes and kids who were not there. So it was very hectic trying to figure out how many people were supposed to be in the house, what kids were at school that day, where did they already get off the school bus, who should we be looking for. They didn't really see anybody until almost 19 minutes later when one of the first responders found Oriana laying outside of the house with a gunshot wound to the head. This is how Sheriff Sloan describes how they found her. Ms. Myers was wearing a coat with a hood and she had a red line drawn across her face, across the bridge of her nose, underneath her eyes, that went from ear to ear. And just a red line drawn across her face. So at 4.41, a Ziploc bag was found duct taped to the passenger side mirror of the family vehicle. And inside of that bag, they found three separate handwritten documents. The first was titled, Whomever Finds This First, and this is where she gives the names of Brian Raven and her mother with the telephone numbers of them and asking whoever found the letters to contact them. She says at the end of this letter, quote, this is no one's fault but mine. My demons went over me and there's no going back. So sorry, I wasn't strong enough. Thank you, XOXOOAM, which is Oriana's initials. The second document was titled My Confession, and this is where she goes into depth about her mental health struggles and where exactly she was mentally at this time. And in this letter, she admits to setting the house on fire, and she details that she shot the boys in the head and then shot herself in the head. They then find a third document titled Will, which is self-explanatory it pertains to her family and on this document there was a bloody fingerprint on it i think whenever investigators found the confession they knew that there was something deep in 
I mean, sinister at play here. See, I feel like this is really the turning point in the whole investigation. I think this is when they realized that something really dark had happened based off of what they had found outside in these documents. Yeah, and now it's just a race against the clock. I mean, they can't get into the home and find any of these children. As she said in the confession, she shot them all in the head. But, you know, for the first responders, they don't know if, did she really do it? I mean, are these kids dead? So now they're trying to get the fire extinguished. They also don't exactly know how many kids are supposed to be there. You know, two of the kids are staying with their mother. Some of the kids were kept home from school. It's just very hectic and very chaotic. So they are finally able to get the house extinguished. And then at 827, they discovered the remains of the first child. And at 925, they found the remains of the second child. And I can remember when all of this was happening, I was in contact with some of the first responders who were there. It had been a very long day for them. Of course, a very heartbreaking day for them after all they had uncovered. And a lot of them said that they just couldn't rest until they know that all of these kids were found and could be brought home. So this was all still on Tuesday, December 8th. Now we're going to move to Wednesday, December 9th. Still, investigators are searching inside the home. At 1235, they found the remains of the third child. And at 109, they found the remains of the fourth child. During this initial search, the remains of the fifth child were not initially found. They sent some remains to the medical examiner's office, and the examiner came back and said, are you sure these are a separate set of remains? We can't really confirm that. This seems like it could be a set of remains from one of the other children, so we have to run more tests. And it wasn't until 2.35 on December 12th that they were finally able to get that confirmation of the fifth child. That's three days after they were found. I can't even imagine what that was like for the family to be waiting for those results. And not only the family, I would say the first responders as well who knew that really all the answers to this entire thing lied within inside of the home and knowing that the remains of this child couldn't be found had to have been devastating for everyone involved. Yeah, a lot of these first responders have kids themselves, so it's very difficult for them to put their emotions aside. A lot of them have kids that are this age, so it was very difficult again for them to think, I mean, what if this was me? What if I was in this position? And something, a detail that I think just kind of shows how heinous this crime really was, the gun that they found that was used was a single shot shotgun. So Oriana had to physically reload that after every shot. So she reloaded that gun five times to murder each child. It's really unimaginable. I, it almost leaves me speechless because I don't even know how you, you could get to a place to do that. Yeah. I mean, certainly that's something that I think we're always going to ask is how did we get to this point? How could anybody want to murder anybody, but let alone five children? One of them was one. I mean, there's no way that those children could have ever done something so awful to deserve this. In the days and weeks to follow, officers continued to investigate and they started to review footage from the bus stop to see maybe exactly where Oriana was mentally or if there were any physical changes to her leading up to this day and that's when officers found the footage of the actual day of the crime when 
Oriana was seen wearing the same coat and the red mark across her face at the bus stop when she picked the children up that day. And Kian asked her why there was blood on her face when she picked him up. She told him she drew it on herself. Another important thing to note is that the bus stop driver told investigators that normally every day she would have a little conversation with them and she was usually friendly and talkative, but on this specific day, she didn't speak to the bus driver and she was very closed off and just not like her normal self. So even Kian, her own son, could tell that something was really wrong. It led him to the point where he asked his mom what was going on. Casey, I think that's just honestly really heartbreaking to know that before anything actually happened, he knew that something was just off about his mom. And he was four years old, so what does that say, that he was that in tune with his mother, that he was like, okay, what's what's going on today? Yeah. And even though this happened in 2020, here we are, 2021, one year before the anniversary of the case, so this would be December 7th, 2021, there was some pretty powerful testimony brought up at the state capitol bringing CPS protocols into question, specifically this crime. So we went back and listened to this hearing, and basically what happened, a dental hygienist called CPS after one of the children came in for an appointment. She said that she took a photo of a bruise on one of the child's arm. She said that the child just seemed visibly shaken. Whenever she called CPS, they asked her a few questions and said that they had everything they needed. This was after she also detailed that the, fa- or the child seemed scared of the father, and the father was in the parking lot verbally abusing the child. So whenever the dental hygienist is telling CPS all of this, they basically hang up and say they've heard what they needed to hear. The same day that they that call was made, she heard back from CPS, and they claimed that the report did not meet the standards for abuse, so there was nothing that could be done. And this call was made in August, and those kids were murdered in December. So this prompted State Senator Stephen Baldwin, who also, he covers Greenbrier County. He's very, very involved in the community. He's a pastor in the community. So he also was very, very shaken by this crime and everything that happened. And he made it his mission to introduce legislation in this year's legislative session in Charleston to help reform the CPS system so calls like this don't slip through the cracks again. What's really interesting is that we've been working on this episode for a few months now, and none of this had come out until very recently. And it was the very last thing to come in as we were doing our research and gathering all the information. And it feels to me like this is how the story should end. This is what should be happening next to make sure that this doesn't ever happen again. Yeah. And of course, CPS, um, you know, they gave some statements at the hearing as well and they said you know they're a very overwhelmed system they have a lot of people working and they're just very overworked and not that they were using that as an excuse I don't want to say that at all but they were definitely just trying to say this kind of stuff happens and it's very unfortunate in this case that this wasn't caught sooner but because 
that wasn't caught. That meant that that call was never transferred to our local CPS here in Southern West Virginia, which meant that law enforcement couldn't go and do any checks. So the question that everyone's going to ask forever is, could this have been prevented if law enforcement was able to get involved months before this happened? It feels like Oriana was failed in a way by the system. And I also think it's important to note the mental health aspect of this story and specifically mental health in Southern West Virginia. I know that growing up here, it was never something that was discussed. It felt like not until the last few years, people really started to talk about it and take away the shame of it. And this woman asked for help. You can hear in the text messages that we've read that she was crying out for help and she didn't get the help that she needed. And it takes bravery to ask for help. And we always say that if you need help to reach out and ask for it, and she did, and she didn't get that help. Yeah, of course, uh, it's important for us to always remember the victims in this case, and that was the five children who who knows what they would be doing, but they certainly had a lot of life left to live. So I want to just read some of the obituary. Um, the five kids were named were known as Team Shark because Shark spells all of their initials: Sean, Haken, Ezekiel, Riley, and Kean. So Sean was the oldest. He was a second grade student at Frankfurt Elementary. He loved playing t-ball and climbing trees. He was interested in space and wanted to be an astronaut. Riley was in kindergarten at Frankfurt Elementary. He loved all sports, especially football, and he was extremely interested in music and was learning to play the piano and the ukulele at six years old. Ezekiel loved painting, and as a kid, he was a little sneaky. He loved Ninja Turtles and superheroes. And Haken was the youngest, and the family says he was spoiled by everyone and loved driving his toy cars. But something I think about when reading this obituary online is there's only four kids in this obituary. And the harsh and tough reality is that it was because it took so long for those last set of remains to be identified. So in this obituary, we're missing Kian, who was four years old. And reading about these kids and the long lives that they had ahead of them and just the potential that they had is just heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. And that's why we chose to do this case first, because this really touched us in such a deep and profound way. And these children deserve to have their story heard. They deserve justice. And even if it's just reading their obituaries and hearing a little bit about their personalities and their life that they did live, that's what matters. Yeah. So a few days after the crime, there was a vigil that was organized at the state fairgrounds, and I had a chance to actually talk to Raven at that vigil. And just, I mean, over a year later, and I still can remember our conversation, she was just talking about how her kids were just such bright lights and there wasn't a person that they didn't like. And when this crime happened, it was close to Christmas and all they were worried about was helping other kids and making sure that every kid had a smile on their face. I mean, they were cut short of that by a few weeks. It's just heartbreaking. Here's how Raven is always going to remember her kids and this interview was at that vigil that happened in 2020. A lot of their classmates wrote letters 
for the kids and almost every single one of them, they have good manners. They always smiled, they were kind, they were my best friend. Their teacher said the same thing. They're always thinking about somebody else, making their day special. I had one lady approach me saying she had 88 children that they were sponsoring and they were gonna donate. They've been taking clothes and cards and toys and they're making it happen. They were lights. They were lights that didn't matter what was going on, the good, the bad, rainy days. They were lights. They were always happy. They made you feel good about yourself. When at that vigil, it just shows a lot about our law enforcement in the community. One of the first responders who was there drove through the vigil without his sirens on, just his lights, to show respect for those five kids. And Autumn, I think that just shows so much about the first responders who work so hard in the communities that we live in. It really shows how much that this investigation in particular touched them. And we touched on it before how this is a story that really stuck with us and still sticks with us. And I think we can say the same for our first responders who were the first ones on scene, the first ones who found out that this was a crime against children and that their mother was at the hands of all of this. And it just goes to show how deeply they were impacted and how much they actually really cared to make sure that these children got the justice they deserve. And we want to give everyone who's listening a number to call in case you're feeling negative thoughts or you find yourself struggling with mental health or depression. Please do not be afraid to reach out. And we have the National Prevention Suicide Lifeline. It is 1-800-273-TALK or 1-800-273-8255. And like I said, please do not be afraid to reach out because your life matters and so does the life of others around you. Thank you so much for listening to our first episode of Crime in the Coalfields. Casey and I had such a good time doing this podcast and editing it and researching, and we are so excited for what's to come and what we have planned for these next few episodes. Speaking of what we have planned, Autumn, this next episode is one that you're not going to believe. Buckle up. It's a doozy and the craziest story that I've heard since I've been in the news industry. We can't wait to bring it to you in two weeks. We'll see you there. This podcast is a production of WVNS 59 News in Beckley, West Virginia. It's written and produced by Casey Gentile and Autumn Collins. Production and editing is done by Brian C., for more information on this case and others, you can visit our website at wvnstv.com.